Well, if there's one thing that the whole world, at least in the world of American politics, seems to agree upon, it's that the political system doesn't work so well. There's a lot of perspectives on why that's the case. But so often it delves into the world of special interest control of American politics. Well, we're going to explore two questions for the next hour. One is why? Why is politics in this country not functioning as well as it should? And the second is how? How do we fix this? And we're going to tell you about a very innovative solution. Now, if you listen to my program on a regular basis, you might have heard about it before. But we're really going to get into the nitty gritty uh, at this point in terms of what a different system of American politics might look like and where campaign finance reform fits into that whole equation. Very pleased to be joined for the hour by a guy who has been a leader in the movement for a new type of campaign finance reform, Dan McMillan, in addition to being a lawyer, a PhD, a former professor, a former prosecutor. These days, an, an author, these days he's the executive director of Save Democracy in America. Dan, thanks for coming in. It's great to see you again. Oh, bless you, Frank. Thank you. It's good to see you, too. So, there might be some people listening to this who've heard our previous conversations, but yeah. I don't think we can reiterate the first part of this uh, quite enough. Yes. What's wrong with the campaign finance system in this country today? Well, the shortest way to say it, the most brutal, and it is a brutal reality, is that we have a government that's for sale to hide all our campaign donors. Uh, and these are really the only, and this is not government by the people, which is not really what you know, our founding fathers had in mind when they wrote our Constitution. And it's it's been going on for a long time. I think you can trace it all the way back to the end of the 1970s. The last 10 years since this, you know, 12 years since the Citizens United decision, the problem has just kind of ballooned in proportions. That is to say, the last three cycles, 2018, 2020, 2022, have shattered fundraising and spending records. Uh, the cost of the federal elections, White House and Congress together, more than doubled in constant dollars and in inflation-adjusted dollars from 16 to 20, from $7 billion to $14.4 billion that individuals and pressure groups spent to buy influence in Washington. And, and yet, in a way, you know, if you say that special interests have all the power, that, in a way in itself, even drastically understates the problem because— the biggest, the, the biggest, I don't know, how should I put this? The biggest part of the problem is not even the obvious influence peddling. Like just, for example, you know, we're the only first world country that doesn't regulate drug prices. Americans pay more than twice as much for medicines as Germans, Canadians, Australians, people in any other country. Uh, in a survey I saw in 2019, a quarter of Americans reported in the previous year not taking medication they needed because they couldn't afford it. Um, why is that? Well, it's because Big Pharma is one of the biggest donors year in and out, and it, uh, and they own Congress. They got Congress in their pockets. Um, or the fact that the the federal minimum wage has not gone up since 2009. It's still $7.25 an hour. Um, has it stayed stuck where it is because we, the people— you know, we love our employers so much. We, we really want to work at McDonald's or Walmart <laughs> and, and starve. You know, we don't, want to, we don't want food for our children. No, of course not. It's because low-wage employers like McDonald's and, and, and Walmart, you know, have got Congress in their pockets. And yet, in a way, this kind of 
the bigger part of the reality is even scarier, and that is that because the bulk of the damage is really all the good ideas um, that might solve our problems, all the tough questions we ought to ask, all the talented people who could be political leaders who never come into the conversation because they can't raise the money that you need to get a campaign off the ground. Another way to put this is that by default, the campaign donors pick the candidates we're allowed to vote for. Because, you know, like a year before election year, you have what political scientists call the invisible primary. All the candidates Mm. are competing with each other behind the scenes to raising money. You don't raise enough money. The the public never even learns your name. The The press won't take you seriously. And so... Any idea, any person that's not that's even uninteresting to the donors gets weeded out. But this problem has, has as I say, dramatically worsened just in the last six or seven years. It's <laughs> interesting you bring up the idea of the invisible primary. We yeah. heard a lot about that in the 90s and in the early 2000s. In 2016, though, on yeah. the Republican side of the ledger, Donald Trump spent less money than almost any of the the Republicans that he was running against and then spent far less money than the general election opponent that he had, he was still able to win. Bernie Sanders, while not able to win the nomination, certainly gave both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders and uh, Joe Biden a run for their money. And most of his contributions, particularly early on, were not from big special interest groups. They were from individual donors and powered by uh, the sort of rank-and-file grassroots activism. Aren't those two examples, Trump and Sanders, sort of the exception that money may not be as dominant as the power to inspire people at a grassroots level. Well, you know, they, they are the exceptions that prove the rule because the thing is there's, there's, not, there's not enough small-dollar money out there to support more than a handful of high-profile candidates with national name recognition. But at the same time, also, and, and Trump was badly outspent by Clinton. Clinton and outraised and outspent, I mean, Trump raised and spent only about a third of what Clinton did in 16. On the other hand, they say he got at least a billion dollars of free media because he made good television. You yeah. know, a lot more than Clinton was. Clinton was not exactly exciting television. Yeah, right? and uh, probably <laughs> the same could be said for Jeb Bush and uh, oh, yes. some of the other Republicans that were running that year. So, But, but can uh, I say one please, more thing? Because yeah. I think that's very, that was positive about the 16 is that the success of Trump and Sanders, I mean, Trump had taking the nomination, Sanders coming so close in 16, and all the small dollar money they raised really showed how fed up the American people are with politics as usual. The American people want change, and both these candidates, Trump and Sanders, in their own way, their top line message, you know, Sanders said we need a revolution. Trump said we need to drain the swamp. Um, neither candidate had a plan for change, nor did Barack Obama in 08, and his big slogan was change, too. And and that, in a way, itself shows how bad, how much, you know, the American people, you know, politicians and people in a lot of the national media think the voters are stupid. They're not. Americans know what time it is. They know this isn't working. They know no one's listening to them. And they want change. And so candidates who just promise change, even without specifics, got all the support, but none of these candidates could offer the change because what needs to be changed is money, and everyone in Washington is so dependent on their donors, they can't lead in this issue. It's interesting the 
two policy issues that you raised at the top of our conversation, minimum wage and uh, allowing the government to negotiate for drug prices, because those are two issues of many in which there's broad bipartisan agreement. Yes. Uh, Rank and file Democrats and Republicans both think that the federal minimum wage should be higher or adjusted for inflation. And they think that the government should have the ability to negotiate drug prices as uh, the VA does and as other countries do. It's in, Ralph Nader wrote a book about uh, maybe 10 years ago called Unstoppable, where he goes through maybe about 35 issues that the that rank and file Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals agree upon. He yes. goes through trade. He goes through foreign policy issues, yeah. civil liberties issues, issues on political reform like term limits, things like that, limiting ads and children's programming. And it, it's interesting for me to note that while the majority of the American people are for all of these, I would argue, very yeah. common sense reforms, a lot of the people that are making money from the status quo the way it is now and then have that money to hire lobbyists and make campaign donations, they're not for those changes. The candidates that you referenced, Obama, uh, Trump, they all they ran for office with very bold ideas, very big ideas on changing the status quo. And yet when they got in, whether it's uh, financial regulation, whether it's the military, whether yeah. it's foreign policy, they ended up uh, acting a lot more like status quo politicians than their rhetoric on the campaign trail. Do you think that's in part due to the influence of special interests and the role that money plays in politics? I, I think it's 100 percent for that. You know, I mean... Look, Obama, it's interesting, too, when I talked about earlier about how the donors choose the candidates we're allowed to vote for, you know, everyone thought that Obama was just a total long shot. And then in April of 2007, all the campaigns issued their first quarter reports on fundraising because you have to report to the Federal Election Commission. And it was a political thunderclap. Obama had actually outraised Clinton. Uh, for the primary, like twenty three and a half million to twenty two million, and all of a sudden, overnight, Obama was absolutely a viable candidate. Obama can win. Well, he didn't raise that money by telling people on Wall Street that you know he was going to rein in risky, you know, excessive risk taking, bring back Glass Steagall or anything like that. Yeah, anything that might have prevented the 08 crash because that would have cut into their profits. He didn't tell drug company executives he wanted to regulate their prices because they were too high. And, and I'm not saying this to knock him. He did what he had to do. Clinton did the same thing, ditto McCain. So, and that's, I guess, one other thing I want to say is, you know, I, I, I don't, I mean, the system has corrupted a lot of politicians and made some of them into something pretty ugly. But to a large degree, they're victims of the system, too. We all are victims of the system. About 10 years ago, I was listening to another radio interview on another station. This fellow's not on the air anymore, but he was a smart enough guy. He was conservative, and he was interviewing an author about uh, campaign finance reform, not about democracy dollars, but about the role of money in politics in general. And he made a point, which I've heard other people, mostly on the right, but not exclusively make, which is that he didn't think that money was corrupting uh, in the political process because whatever your position was on a given issue, there would be an interest group that was prepared to fund you on it. For instance, if you were for gun control, you could go to pro-gun control groups, get money from them. But if you're very pro-Second Amendment, you could go to groups like the NRA and get money from them and go down the line when it comes to climate change, when it comes to taxes, when it comes to issue after issue, there's already an interest group that aligns with what your uh, positions already happen to be. And so his view is, 
because you're not seeing politicians change their political stripes because whatever their positions are, they can get money based on those positions. How would you respond to that sort of a criticism? I, I, I'd say he's an awfully smart guy who's really good at snowing us, and that's what he's trying to do <laughs> because it's so silly. Yeah, for because it's not true that for every position you can find money. You can find money for policy positions that make rich people happy and that make corporations happy. And, and yes, there are some, you know, sort of liberal billionaires who will fund some candidates. And that's why we do have some politicians that might advocate positions that aren't necessarily, you know, the ideal for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. But basically, when you have a system where that with the most expensive elections on earth by probably a factor of 10 compared to other uh, just pulling a number out of the air, other, you know, wealthy countries, and all that money comes from the Americans who can give it in bulk, the system is totally biased toward wealthy interests. The oh, You mentioned the Citizens United decision. That certainly yeah. got a lot of attention at the time that it came down, sparked a lot of bipartisan outrage in some yes. quarters, and there's no question it changed the face of campaign finance in this, co- in this country. But uh, that was, you know, in, you know, the 2010, 2011. 2010 is exactly right. And it's not as if before that, that the campaign finance system was working terribly well. I mean, you had John McCain run for president in 2000, largely on a campaign finance reform platform. Uh, 96, Perot, same thing. So the problem didn't begin with Citizens United, did it? No, you know, it really began... In a lot of ways, it began with a Supreme Court decision most people haven't heard of called Beckley v. Vallejo in 1976. And this was really the crucial – I mean this is – people haven't heard of it, but it's like just – almost just as important as, say, Brown v. Board of Ed or the latest case that overturned Roe. Um, and basically in Buckley, that was when the seven justices decided that money spent to influence elections was itself free speech. Mm. Up to that point – Free speech in our country, in every country, just meant the freedom to say what you think. Go it figure. Did, go, yeah, isn't that strange? It, you know, it didn't mean the money you might spend to purchase an audience for your speech with TV ads, or more importantly, to drown out everyone else's speech with TV ads, which is how it works. And it just, it, to me, it's like the ultimate triumph of both learning over common sense. You need the handicap of a law degree to come up with something that stupid. I mean, I don't think you could go into a single bar in this country at 2 a.m. and find seven, you know, bar flies badly inebriated and get them to buy into such a dumb idea. But (laughs) Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Jesse Ventura, who's a regular guest of mine and who oh, I really? happen to like, uh, who is uh, very much, even if he has outlandish ideas at times, very much sort of a plain speaking, common sense guy. Yeah. He always loves to point to that and say, I'm waiting for the next guy that gets arrested for bank robbery to say, I was just going in to get some speech. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant. And, yeah. So, I've always liked him. Yeah. yeah he's, uh, he, again, I know yeah. he's a little out there at times, but he has yeah. a certain way of putting uh, concepts that really illustrate yeah. the problem. All right. 
So uh, there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of solutions proposed to the yeah. campaign finance issue over the years, and we're going to get to your chosen proposal of democracy dollars or democracy vouchers in a moment. Um, let me go through what some other municipalities have been doing and what on the federal level they've been toying with from time to time over yeah. the years. One of the things we hear a great deal about is what we have in New York City, what some what we're now expanding to New York State, which is a matching funds program. The yeah. theory being that this empowers small donors and this will allow uh, people not have to have to go beg some wealthy special right. interest for a lot of money because they can just go to the yeah. to the masses. Why is a matching funds program not necessarily the ideal solution? Well, you know, I mean, some matching fund systems are well-designed, and you have to say the people who made them happen, God bless them, they did God's worth, they've raised consciousness about money. But the thing is that, you know, matching fund systems will match, the government will give money at like a ratio of, say, 9 to 1 or 6 to 1 to a candidate to match a small-dollar contribution. Like, I donate 25 to the candidate, and the uh, government gives an additional 150 to the candidate. But this, the one obvious problem is that uh, most Americans don't have enough cash lying around to be giving money to politicians. Now, why should this – why should the political influence that comes with money be reserved to the upper middle class? Because basically that's what this does. And the other is that sometimes this allocation system can be rigged. It can be gamed. It's very complicated. Um, and I, you know, that's I've heard that a lot about in New York City that there are a lot of ways in which that system has been gamed and kind of corrupted, and then after every election, like all the campaigns get audited and it's enormously complex. Versus, you know, the democracy dollar system that we'll talk about in a second is incredibly simple and kind of impossible to rig. What about just simple, flat-out, straight public financing for everybody? For every candidate for Congress, let's say, or for president, you get fully funded, um, you know, $2 million for your congressional campaign once you make the ballot or whatever number is appropriate for the office we're talking about. What would be the – what's wrong with just pursuing straight public, full public financing? It's it's not so much that it's wrong, but again, it's also something that you're talking about a pile of cash in D.C. or in Albany that bureaucrats dole out to by some formula that incumbents have often written, often to preserve their incumbency. You know, um, whereas the 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 idea of democracy dollars is that the decision of how the money gets allocated is is decentralized to at the federal level 168 million registered voters and there's no way to rig that or corrupt it so let's talk about democracy dollars uh, explain to folks who have not heard our previous conversation what it is how it would work and why it would be beneficial so you know the our basic problem is the only people with any juice in washington anymore and and for that matter in albany and most other state capitals and legislatures around the country the only people with any any say anymore are big donors. So let's make ourselves the donors. And the way this would work in practice is that for every at the federal level, for every two-year cycle, the government would create an online campaign cash account for every registered voter. You can't take the money out and spend it for personal use, but you go online with, a, with your PIN, and you assign these democracy dollars to the candidates you want to support. And if you fund the system robustly, uh, we're calling for $100 per voter in a presidential year, $50 per voter in the midterms. That's a big pot of money. 
it's enough for all serious candidates who have something to offer us to raise enough money for the kind of you know expensive campaign you need to be competitive. On the other hand, your opponent doesn't have a whole lot of excuse for taking money from big oil, big pharma, or anyone else. Uh, it was invented about 20 years ago by a couple of bright guys, and one of whom I know I've talked to, a very nice guy, Bruce Ackerman, at Yale Law School. Uh, but politicians have not picked up this ball and run with it because, again, they're too dependent on their donors. I know that uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand had uh, made this proposal when she ran for president. Has she introduced it in Congress? And if if not, has anybody introduced this in Congress? It, it has been introduced in Congress. There was actually a pretty well-drafted bill in in 2018. It was... Uh, it was actually uh, written by uh, Rokana's staff consulting with Ackerman and Ayers, these profs at Yale Law School. And it's, I've read it. It's a good basis for discussion. But then the Democratic uh, leadership in the House buried it. What they did is they had it introduced um, in December 2018 in the last weeks of a lame duck Republican-controlled House, knowing that three weeks later right. the Democratic majority is in the House because, again, they just – Ultimately, this is not – I mean, it's great that they did this. It's, it's, it's good that we have this to shoot for and we can talk about it and it gives us ideas about how to implement. But ultimately, the leadership's not going to come from Washington. We, the people, have got to demand it. The uh, three objections that I've heard from conservatives and or libertarians about this proposal okay. all have to do with, uh, with money. Yeah. What kind of – cost are we talking about to the taxpayers of what if your proposal was implemented what kind of uh, cost are the taxpayers looking to shoulder if it is fully implemented oh, if if all 168 million registered voters uh, use their democracy dollars uh, in in every election then over uh, a four-year period two cycles it would average out to 6.3 billion a year and I think we agree this is serious money. I mean, oh, we're yeah. running a, a deficit of $1.4 trillion every year, which we really should not be doing. So there are a couple of things. One is that we got to remember we're already paying for the current system, and we're paying through the nose. Like we're paying twice as much for health care as we ought to because the insurance company lobby and the pharma lobby and the malpractice bar, we can't, you know, make any reforms that would cut into their profits. Um endless amounts of wasteful government spending. My favorite example is that every year, $20 billion of your tax dollars and mine go in direct subsidies to oil and coal and gas companies that are already profitable to make them more profitable. Um, and, you know, if we could just eliminate that one subsidy, that pays for the cost of a democracy dollar system three times over, just that one. You know, when I, I think mm. that pales in comparison, the uh, even if you talk about the maximum amount mm. of contributions that people mm. would be spending under this proposal to a lot of the carve outs that special interests, including the one that you just mentioned, yes. are able to write for themselves in the tax code and for yes. the direct expenditures. So I, I am very sympathetic on that end. From a philosophical and an ideological point yeah. of view, a lot of people have said, 
I don't want my tax dollars going to support a candidate whose views that I find repugnant. If I'm a conservative, I don't want a communist running for Congress who gets now to spread his message or her message because of the tax dollars that uh, I am paying for, which through the democracy Mm -hmm. dollar program would be happening. Why is that not a sound objection to this proposal? Well, I think because... We won't be paying. You won't be paying for someone else's political views. You'll be paying. You, it's basically your tax money that's going that you allocate to support some of your political views. I mean, one way to look at this is you can look at this as a tax rebate. You're getting back some of your tax dollars to use yourself to 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 get yourself influence in the system. The other thing is, we'll start getting better candidates, and we ourselves, you know, normal people like you and I can run for office. Well, admittedly, claiming that I'm normal is kind of stretching it. You know? <laughs> I think a lot of people would take issue with that. But you, Frank, you're a regular guy. I, I know that. So, well, But uh, to your point, right, <laughs> it would be very difficult for me to take off from work uh, for a month, two months, three months even. And the, realistically, if you run for office, you're probably looking to have to take off for a year or two years just so you have time to campaign and to raise money. And this would enable a lot of regular yeah. folks to be able to do that. Yeah, because you, you basically at this point, to, to run for Congress, you almost have to be a millionaire. There are exceptions. AOC is not a millionaire, but most of them, you want to be a millionaire. And you want to have friends who are millionaires. So you can hold a fundraiser at the country club that you all belong to. You get democracy dollars. If you've got you know, some good ideas, some people skills, and you've got the guts to step up and lead, you, know, you, could, be, you could be a nurse. You could be a school teacher. You could be a cop. Um, you know, so in a way, it's not like we're giving money to these politicians who are these distant figures. We'll be giving money to politicians who are like us and who want to serve us. In 2017, Seattle implemented what they call a democracy voucher program. Sounds a lot like the democracy yes. dollar program that you're talking about. Now that we've had a couple of election cycles to see how Seattle has worked out, from your point of view, how has Seattle worked out? It, it has been a tremendous success. I mean, the number of people who donated to campaigns in Seattle more than doubled from 2007 to 2019. So in the first two elections where it was used, uh, and that has broadened the donor base downward economically. Um, it also made possible the def- in 2018, Jeff Bezos and some of his buddies decided they wanted to buy a city council that would be to their liking and they put in an unprecedented $1.5 million into seven city council races. And the people of Seattle, having sort of been educated about the money problem through this democracy dollar system, uh, were just totally angry. It totally backfired. Candidates who took democracy dollars defeated the Bezos candidates. Um, and, 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 and yet this despite the fact that they did make what I think is a very serious mistake in, in implementation – that that the newer attempts are not repeating. That is to say, they did it entirely as paper vouchers. And the paper vouchers often, like people got them in the mail, thought they were junk mail, threw them out. Mm-hmm. But if you, and you do need some paper vouchers for people who don't have access to computers, but for the bulk of the voters, um, you, sh- you know, if, you get, if you've got a smartphone or a computer, you can access your account that way. And then you can use your democracy vouchers, your democracy dollars, at any time throughout the year and also what i would what i would do in this is unless you check a box when you establish your account saying i don't want the campaigns to solicit from me then 
I think the campaign should be allowed to know who has spent their democracy dollars, who hasn't. If you haven't, you get an email from the campaign. By the way, I see you haven't spent your democracy vouchers. Would you? Could you give them to me? Here's why. And I think you'd get a much higher participation rate. Many you, more people doing it. You mentioned mm-hmm. other attempts uh, to implement this yeah. proposal post-Seattle. Yeah. What other municipalities or states or any other places have emulated this Seattle example of democracy? So, so last fall, um, it, in the midterms, it, it was established for city elections in Portland, Maine, and Oakland, California by ballot initiative. And in Oakland, it, the, it was by a two-to-one margin, just a crushing victory. Uh, it's now, um, as it's a bill before the state legislature in Minnesota uh, as part of a comprehensive election reform, but it's going to be part of it. And um, the party that's introduced that has a trifecta has both houses and the governor, so it looks like that's going to sail to passage. Uh, there has been a bill introduced for state elections in New Hampshire, it lost in the New Hampshire House in February, but not that much work had been done. And part of what I'm doing is I'm, I'm um, uh, partnering with a reform group in, in New Hampshire, Open Democracy. We're going to work on building support, uh, you know, among um, both Democratic and Republican legislators in, in New Hampshire to try to get that bill passed next year. Um, so, and there, and there are several efforts underway in, in cities across the country. It seems like every week new efforts are popping up. I don't even have an overview of all the, uh, well, I mean, that certainly, I think goes to show that this uh, idea is worthy of some serious consideration. What some people have raised as an objection to okay. this is that, uh, programs like this may favor incumbents and experienced politicians because they have existing name recognition and a lot of the challengers to incumbents, they find programs like this very difficult to navigate, whereas people that are already in office, they have a team in place that's able to yeah. navigate the sort of bureaucratic waters about this. What, what do you say to people that say this is just one more advantage for incumbent politicians? Well, there's no question. I mean, it's always, you know, challenging incumbents is always going to be hard, you know, because but actually... The fundraising and, and the system has – you have to have a provision in the system that you can raise, say, up to 10 percent of your total campaign funds from sort of private donations of any size. And realistically, a lot of challengers are going to need you know, a sugar daddy or two to get the campaign off the ground so that they can reach the public and get the democracy dollars. On the other hand, it, we, no one has a crystal ball, but probably this advantage is nothing compared to the fundraising advantage incumbents have right now. Because right now, every incumbent, they're already in office. They are in a position to do favors today for special interests, and they are getting money every day today from these interests and these donors. Uh, incumbents outraise challengers massively pretty much in every race. I think in the, in the last election in the House, I think 96% of the incumbents won. Um, it sounds so, about right and not at all surprising. Uh, so, no, no. So clearly they, they're... Gerrymandering is part of that, too. That's another part of it, yeah. Uh, Ethan Blevins, who uh, writes, who uh, uh, is an attorney with the Pacific uh, Legal Foundation, which uh, litigates nationwide on a lot yeah. of libertarian issues. Yeah. He wrote an op-ed in The Hill which says that aside from the practical implications of this, part of the problem is the First Amendment, that the government yeah. can't force taxpayers to front the cash for someone else's campaign contributions, and he believes uh, yeah. that's a 
Supreme Court drove home this message in the uh, Janus decision. And if this yeah. uh, Seattle proposal or a similar proposal were to reach the Supreme Court now under the same principle, that they would uh, find it's unconstitutional. Where do you come down on the whole issue of the constitutionality of this program? Uh, there is no legitimate constitutional challenge to it, uh, you know, in, in a way, because, you know, all these decisions we've got, like Citizens United, uh, the justices have basically, they've taken this idea from the, from the 70s, from Buckley v. Vallejo, that money spent to influence elections is free speech. You know, political money is political speech. You can't limit it. Well, what democracy dollars does it doesn't limit anyone's speech. It gives the power of political speech to 168 million registered voters who didn't have it before because they didn't have enough cash lying around to get to politicians. So it's pretty hard to see. And I also say specifically, I, I read the Blevins article. There had been uh, a lawsuit by some people challenging the Seattle system. Uh, it was just you know, dismissed by a lower court. It went to the to the Washington State Supreme Court. I read the, the opinion of the court. Uh, I have a law degree, so I, I know how to read judicial opinions. And I mean, they really, well, they didn't, they didn't, they don't like to ridicule plaintiffs, but basically they were ridiculing the challenge. Uh, I've also had a chance to speak with experts at the Campaign Legal Center, which is a nonprofit uh, organization that provides support in election law uh, to various, to to all reformers, and basically said, no, there's, there's no constitutional challenge to this. I have to say, the Blevins article is really, I don't like to accuse anyone of lacking sincerity, but boy, he's really skating pretty close to it, <laughs> to put noted. it charitably, you know. The, you know, it seems like so many of the problems that we have with the campaign finance system today and regulating campaign finance come down to the two Supreme Court decisions you've referenced, Buckley versus Vallejo and Citizens United. We've seen clearly the Supreme Court is very capable of overturning prior precedent. Yeah. There's going to be some people that say, well, maybe the best strategy here is to elect a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate that w who will appoint enough U.S. Supreme Court justices to overturn that prior precedent and bring a new challenge that allows the government to have the power to regulate money in campaigns so that it's not viewed as speech. W what do you say to the folks that may favor that approach? Just get a new It's just, you know, at Supreme this point, the, the conservative, the 6-3 majority in the court is is just so heavily baked in most of these except for clarence thomas they're pretty young they're going to be there a long time and also to yeah to go back i mean they do overturn president you know uh they have overturned precedents but this is not a precedent like abortion that so many people are mobilized around so i don't see that happening now there are also you know people who call for a campaign finance constitutional amendment to basically erase the whole Buckley Citizens United problem. And long term, that is something we want to do. That will finish the job on the money. That will allow us to basically completely solve the money problem. But we won't get there until we have a democracy dollar system because we need that to defang all the moneyed special interests who would block an amendment. So what are the next steps in this? If people like the idea of democracy vouchers, if they're interested in moving forward policy-wise on this, where do we go from here? Well, I think that, uh, you know, what the, the, I think the most important thing you can do is if you, you know, anyone in the audience, if what we're saying makes sense to you, if what I'm saying makes sense to you is to 
go to our website and help us spread the word. It's um, I'm going to state the URL twice because it's long. It's savedemocracyinamerica.org, savedemocracyinamerica.org, although you can also Google Dan McMillan Money and Politics, something like that. And, you know, if you like what you see, um, you know, tell your friends. Tell them about this conversation. Share one of our videos. Uh, share – there are links to a number of my interviews on the website. Share the website um, because, you know – I mean, I go on radio, I go on television, I speak in person, I make my best case. Um, but the, f the fact is that most of the people in the audience don't know me from Adam. But people who know you personally, who trust you and respect you, my message, this message about how we can get money out of politics is 100 times more powerful coming from you to those people than it will ever be coming from me. So don't think you can't make a difference. Um, as far as our strategy, I'll tell you, uh, basically, you know, we're proceeding on a lot of different tracks. You've got all these local efforts, and they're racking up wins, and they're going to keep racking up wins. You've got – I'm doing sort of, you know, what I can by giving media interviews, publicizing that way. Uh, the play in New Hampshire is very valuable because, you know, as first in the nation for primaries in presidential season, the eyes of the nation are on New Hampshire. If you can make something happen in New Hampshire – then suddenly it's in the national conversation. Um, now, actually making that, getting the critical mass of New Hampshire voters to care enough about this to really force it into the presidential conversation, maybe we won't get there this year. But by the end of 2027, I think our odds are good. Um, I guess the thing I would say is that the biggest obstacle we face is just that after so many broken promises and disappointments, Americans are just discouraged and and often feel the system is so corrupted we can't fix it. I mean, I've, I've had hundreds of conversations with Americans of all political stripes, all walks of life. 95% say to me, that's a great idea, Dan. I, I hope you can make that happen. And then the next sentence is, oh, but you can't make that happen because people have just given up on politics. People have tuned it out. And a lot of Americans have tuned it out, and I can't fault them because we have been – We've been robbed of our say in government, but and we're, and we're fighting something that we can't see. Americans, we don't know that money is our enemy because everyone who works in politics has these powerful incentives to right. keep us from seeing it. That's it's a closed system. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Um, One of the problems that we've seen get progressively worse since Citizens United is the issue of dark money. Yes. Uh, a lot of super PACs, a lot of nonprofit groups spending a great deal of money on issue advocacy and in some cases in support or in opposition to individual candidates. And unlike direct campaign contributions, which are at least disclosed, very often we don't even know who all the donors are to some of these super PACs or nonprofit groups. Yeah. What does the Democracy Dollar program do to deal with the very real problem of dark money in politics? Well, two things. One is that once we establish it, any candidate who benefits from dark money spending 
their opponent's going to say, well, I serve you because I take democracy dollars. That's how I fund my campaign. My opponent is getting support. There are all these attack ads being run against me. We don't even know who's paying for them. For all we know, in a foreign government's paying for right. them. Because, in fact, the regulation is so lax that foreign nationals, we don't, you know, may, probably are contributing substantial funds to pay for attack ads in our campaigns, but we have no idea how much or who. And the other thing is that once we uh, have a democracy dollar system, then the kind of the interest groups that like to have dark money, you know, like to have a dark money system, they have less power, and then we can pass a disclosure law to to shut this down entirely. The one issue which controls me, quite frankly, is because I've seen the local political machine apparatus in a lot of different municipalities, mm -hmm. including New York, but even in places like yeah. Atlantic City and other inner cities, yeah. is the possibility of this democracy voucher program being corrupted by local okay. power brokers and people mm -hmm. that might try to incentivize uh, voters, particularly low-income voters, mm -hmm. towards directing their democracy dollar contribution to their chosen candidate or candidates yeah. in exchange for a material good. Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe booze, maybe yeah. uh, um, you know, some sort of knick-knack. What can be done to sort of safeguard the corrupting of this process, particularly at yeah. a local level? Well, you know, I guess there's no perfect defense against that. But on the other hand, you know, to be able to to get enough campaign cash to to really impact an election, to give you an advantage, you'd have to go around bribing, you know, I don't know. I mean, who knows if it's a congressional seat, you might have to bribe 5000 voters. Mm -hmm. How are you going to bribe 5,000 voters with at least one of them tattling on you? It's kind of hard to see how you get away with that. On the other hand, matching fund systems where, you know, the money is actually doled out by the government at this ratio of 6 to 1, 9 to 1, sometimes 12 to 1, there you can sort of corrupt, you know, fit, you can get 50 people that you know personally and trust to give you small donations and get that funds. You know, uh, I've heard about that. But democracy dollars, because the thing that's – one of the things that's so great about it – well, there's several things that are – a lot of things that are great about it. One is the way that it directly empowers the voters because right now we feel powerless because we are largely powerless. But here, money is power in American politics. Here's your chunk of power. Uh, secondly, it's really hard for the government to mess up because all the government does is set up the national website, print the vouchers, put the funds you know, in the, in the account – and the actual crucial decision, who gets the money, that's made by 168 million registered voters, individuals. How do you rig that? How do you corrupt that? I just don't see how you can. You are something of a, a student of international history and international affairs, and I'm sure you've looked right. at what other democracies do. There are 150 right. democracies in the world right, right. now. Are there any that use a system like right. democracy dollars? And if if not... Are there any countries that you think have a pretty good campaign finance program? Um, they, I'm, I'm not aware of, of democracy dollars being used anywhere else, but you also don't need it because the cost of election campaigns in – I'm talking now just about, say, the what we think of as truly democratic societies, other first world countries like Canada, Germany, Holland, you know, our friends and allies mm -hmm. basically around the world. 
they all are able to sharply limit the cost of campaigns. One is in these parliamentary systems, the election season is limited to eight weeks. You know, you're not allowed to run the ad- ads all year long. Secondly, uh, in a country like, say, Germany, all the media outlets are required to provide ample free time to the parties. I mean, if a party like gets at least 5% in the last election, then it's allowed at least a certain chunk of free time. Um, I know in Canada, there are public funds provided to all the parties, but I mean, the scale is tiny. Like the the top two parties in Canada in the last election, each got $30 million in public funds versus our elections in 2020 costing $14.4 billion in private money. That gives you an idea of the scale. Uh, and also these countries will also limit the amount of money that campaigns can spend, both for legislative seats or for the prime minister and so on. But we can't have any of those limits because the Supreme Court decided back in 1976 that this money is free speech. A lot of people listening to this conversation and have invested almost an hour of their time, they may say, all right, this sounds interesting, but there's a lot of very real problems in the world right now. You got health care, you got terrorism, you got crime, you got a border Mm -hmm. situation, a migrant Mm -hmm. situation that uh, different Mm -hmm. municipalities are struggling to deal with. Aren't those issues, the issues that are affecting us right now, which uh, are urgently in need of solutions, isn't that more worthy of people's time, attention, and internal conversations than some pie-in-the-sky campaign finance reform proposal? What do you say to those people? Well, I would say that actually we will not make progress on any of those problems until we fix the money problem because for every good idea anyone's got for fixing some other problem – there's going to be a group of donors that block it. Healthcare is kind of the most obvious example, but you know, you name it, whatever you. And it doesn't matter where you are politically. You can be a conservative, and your main issue is def, is the deficit and wasteful spending. Um, well, we're not going to put an end to wasteful corporate welfare without defanging those lobbyists with the money. I mean, the money is really the key. It's the linchpin. It's kind of the strategic, you know. I don't know. There's a little. How much time do we have left, Frank? Are uh, we doing well, just about eight minutes? Oh, good, good. Yeah, it's kind of. I just. It, you know. You remember. You know the the first Star Wars movie. Sure. And at the end, you know how they destroyed the Death Star. Sure. There's like this this one air shaft, in the whole Death <laughs> right. Star, and Luke Skywalker has to. He's got the forces with him, and he shoots the photon torpedo, and it goes into that one spot, and the whole Death Star explodes. You know, in this big fireball. Well, that's kind of. The money issue is that one – it's the chink in the armor. It's the strategic point in the system. Um, it's, it's the place to apply effort. You know, if you want to make the world a better place, if you want to make this country a stronger country, there is no issue more important than, camp, than, than fixing the money problem in our politics because without fixing – if we don't fix the money problem, we're spinning our wheels on everything. One of the things that I've heard from a lot of intellectual conservatives yeah. who I really yeah. respect is, uh, and I guess this was be- most uh, typified by George Will, who wrote a column about this saying, want to take money out of politics, keep politics out of money. But one of the, the uh, issues that I've heard is that the problem is that the government has too much purchasing power. They have too much power to make private sector businesses Mm -hmm. rich and until you uh, as long as the government has that power to make private businesses wealthy yeah the special interests are going to find some way 
to game the system and get wealthy off of the government dole. So a lot of these folks say that the solution is not uh, whatever campaign finance reform solution. The solution is to have the government spend less money. Spend less money, yeah. Have the government less involved in the economy. Well, you know, because my campaign is nonpartisan, I'm not going to get into a sticky question to how big our government should be. Um, but I also say he's still putting he's still putting the cart before the horse. You know, it's no matter even if we spend a lot less, the government is still going to be spending a lot. We still are going to need a military. We still need a police force. We still need this and that. We still need roads and bridges. There's still going to be a ton of government spending, even if you cut it in half. So the real issue is who controls how we make those choices. You know, politicians make control those choices. Who controls the politicians? The donors control the politicians. But if we become the donors, when they get to D.C., these politicians will keep doing what they're doing now, taking care of their donors, but now they take care of us. And then we have government by the people again here in the land of its birth. You know, what a concept. The website, if people want to learn more about this, is savedemocracyinamerica.org, savedemocracyinamerica.org. Dan McMillan, thank you for the time. I hope we can continue the conversation soon. I'd love to. Thank you so much, Frank. All right. If you have questions, you can email me. You can go to the website, certainly, savedemocracyinamerica.org. But you can also email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I'll do what I can to answer it. And uh, if I am unable to do so, we'll uh, get your question over to Dan and uh, get the answer back to you. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.